You ask for miracles, Theo. I give you the Empire Podcast. Mm-hmm. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to a very special episode of the Empire Podcast, brought to you in association with our very lovely and talented chums at Sky Cinema and Absolute Radio. Why is it special? Well, because it's dedicated to one of the greatest films of all time, a light-hearted, feel-good romp guaranteed to give you the warm and fuzzies this festive season. I'm talking, of course, about Die Hard, which is available exclusively on Sky Cinema this Christmas. Why is it available this Christmas? Why is it available on demand from December 1st? Well, because it's a Christmas movie, of course, isn't it? Well, some say no, including the film star, Bruce Willis. So we decided to settle this definitively, once and for all. So here to argue the toss with me over the next insert minutes here are, <laughs> are three of the finest diehard, diehard fans I have the pleasure to know. And none of them hopefully will be walking around the pod with rug barefoot making fists with their toes. From Sky Cinema, we have a man who looks good in sharp suits. Not today, though. You disappointed me. <laughs> he looks good in sharp suits with his finely calibrated facial hair. So is he Hans Gruber <laughs> or Ellis? Either way, he's the face and voice of Sky Cinema, the wonderful Alex Sane. Hello, thank you. Yeah, good to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. I am disappointed by the lack of a suit, Alex. I'm sorry, it's winter out there. It's cold. I mean, I do have a wool suit. I wish I could say, they do have suits for winter, you know. I do. Yeah, they do have suits for winter. I've got my tights on under these jeans. (laughs) Too much. Too much already. And the Jodfers are a lovely touch. (laughs) Really like it. From Absolute Radio, we have a studly man with magnificent stubble and... (laughs) I'm guessing a collection of white fests in his wardrobe. <laughs> he is the host of the Absolute Radio Breakfast Show. He's just finished. You must be exhausted, Dave Barry. I'm feeling good. I'm excited about this. Yeah? Yeah, blow the cobwebs off talking about Die Hard. No problems at all. Well, I've got the vest on under the polo neck. <laughs> Don't worry. I'll be revealing all. You've got a vest. I've got tights. This <laughs> is quite a lot. If we put those together, we could be in the ballet. <laughs> I wonder what our next guest is wearing. From the Empire Podcast, we have our very own Walt down at Nakatomi. The contractually obligated James Dyer. How are you? Lose the grid or you lose your job. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm very good. Thank you, Chris. I should point out, James can only respond in diehard quotes. <laughs> I already <laughs> fill out my debt. <laughs> it should be noted, this is not unique to this podcast either. This is no, just my general. Um, I am wearing my Nakatomi Plaza t-shirt. Oh, yes, um, you are. From uh, Last Exit to Nowhere. Rumour has it, Arafat buys his there. <laughs> <laughs> So that's good. I have two. I am so pleased I watched the film yesterday, so I'm, I'm keeping up to speed with all of these references. Uh, those of you listening, trust me, these are really good for those of you who didn't watch Die Hard over the last 24 hours. Imagine if you hadn't watched Die Hard, you were like already three minutes into this podcast, you'd be going, what the fuck is going on? I mean, I get the vest bit. What's the sky on with the tights? Who's Ellis? What is a James Dyer, honestly? Just like uh, Saigon, hey, Slick. I was in junior high, Dick. I can't! <laughs> <laughs> Gotta stop! Gotta stop! We'll let you know when we come and do your man. <laughs> oh my god, we're gonna need some more podcasters, I guess. Uh, anyway, anyway, let's get on with this and let's talk about Die Hard. It's a film I'm sure we all love. Dave, you just watched it for the first time. <laughs> But did you like it? Yeah, it was all right. <laughs> anyway, I'll see you guys later on. Have fun. <laughs> see you next year for Die Hard 2, yeah? That's yeah, the one no, at the airport. It's, it's, yeah. a great, it's a great movie, and it was nice to revisit it. You know, we're, we're obviously doing the podcast with you guys today. It was a, a nice excuse to, to dust it off, and it's as good as it always has been. Do you need an excuse to dust it off, or do you dust it off around Christmas, Alex? I, I mean, look, I know you mentioned at the start Bruce Willis saying, like, oh, it's not a Christmas movie. Yeah. He did that recently. But we have to take into account the circumstance in which he did that, which was during a comedy roast. And the one thing you have, I, we, I think we've all met Bruce Willis at some point. I mean, 
He's yeah. got a unique sense of humour. And I think this was exactly the kind of thing that Bruce Willis does to just go... <laughs> Watch what's going to happen now. And sure yeah. enough, everyone's like, oh, Bruce says it's not a Christmas movie. It's not a Christmas movie. It is a Christmas movie. Yes, he was making a joke, right. people. Yeah. Well, he is, on well, the one hand, a professional troll. But also, yeah. the fact, I mean, he did say, he said it's not a Christmas movie, it's a fucking Bruce Willis movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It is, of course, both. Um, there was a there was an amazing um, thing that happened when uh, we were working at MTV where Bruce Willis was in there and the poor producer because Bruce Willis can be quite difficult as well as a bit of a jokester um, said to him like could you say could you say hi uh, this is Bruce Willis you're watching MTV and Bruce Willis looked at her and said I think they'll know who I am. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so I haven't uh, I haven't had the pleasure of meeting Bruce, but I, I hear if you get some good stuff out of him, then you know as you, as you say he'll be talked about around the world. But he intimidates me. I don't know whether with uh-huh. the Christmas movie debate. Uh-huh. And this is as I say, I've just watched it. It was it's fresh in my mind. Okay, I don't think that from a script or any of the scenarios or any of the situations that the characters find themselves in. I don't think it's kind of really set at Christmas. I think it's almost like the props department had the only saying it being a Christmas movie. Because if you, you can sub out like, now I've got a machine gun, ho, 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 you can get rid of that. Uh, well, you can get rid of those... I have a machine those... gun, happy Easter. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> you can think of it wherever. There's those massive office scapes and there's just one yeah. kind of like snowman lamp. That's the present. <laughs> and then when he's got the gun uh, parcel tape to his back, they uh-huh. pick some Christmas tape. Uh-huh. But that's kind of all there is, apart from let it snow at the very end. Uh-huh. I mean, where it's not a what I mean you is you, you, could crow, day, you could crowbar all of those references in Die Hard into like I don't know Skyfall or another action movie, <laughs> and it wouldn't be a Christmas movie. And therefore, and the other big question, you know, you got would you watch Die Hard at any other time of year? You know, uh-huh. you could say this about Elf or any of the Christmas classics, Scrooged. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, I've enjoyed Die Hard in July. You maniac. <laughs> 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 Absolute I maverick. Mean, does someone want to feel this? This is. Uh, oh, you go first. Let me strip to my vest first when I take this out. <laughs> all right, I'm going to loosen my tights. <laughs> so, first of all, okay, it on. features a real life Grinch as the villain in Hans Gruber, who is basically trying to steal Christmas. It has three, not one, but three amazing Christmas songs Let It Snow, Run DMC's Christmas in Hollis, yes. and Winter Wonderland. There is, as Chris mentioned at the start, a Christmas miracle courtesy of Hans Gruber. You asked for a miracle, I give you the F-B-I. <laughs> and there's even a Santa in a lift, which we all know is the modern-day chimney, <laughs> who actually says, ho, ho, ho. So, I mean, there is, for starters, and if you want to get religious on this, Bruce Willis, a.k.a. John McClane, spends the whole movie talking to Al, Officer Sergeant Powell, a man who he doesn't know what he looks like, he can't see, and yet he trusts, and he opens up to him about his deepest fears and his insecurities, and eventually, Sergeant Powell as we're calling him in this, <laughs> guides John McClane back into the light. Boom! It's a Christmas movie! Hang on, are you saying that Sergeant Powell is Noel Edmonds? <laughs> no, no, it's, it's Clarence. This is the It's a Wonderful Life Cinematic oh, Union. Right, sorry. This is his next gig once Noel he gets Edmonds. promoted. Well, oh, okay, well, that's if you're going to say all sense. that stuff, <laughs> <laughs> fine. But I think my stuff about the props department still stands. <laughs> uh, it should be noted that this, obviously this is based on a Roderick Thorpe book, mm. uh, Nothing Lasts Forever, which is also set at Christmas time, although it takes place over three days instead of one night. I spoke to both writers, Steve D'Souza and Jeff Stewart, about this and director John and all of which maintain it is in fact a Christmas movie. In fact, they're saying that so Christmas is the setup. It's the only reason they could come up with for the building to be 
empty. Uh, that's all in the original novel. Oh. And when you get into it, if you think about it, the whole thing is a cockle-warming tale of an absentee father and husband being reunited with his family at Christmas time. There is nothing more festive than this. Obviously, some terrorists get in the way and he has to kill a bunch of people. That's <laughs> by the by. But, you know, it ends in that beautiful moment. He's been shot. He's got a bullet hole in his shoulder. He's, you know what I mean? It's so Christmassy. It feels really festive. I think Christmas livery goes all the way through it. And also, also, it ends just as Christmas morning is kind of breaking. I think that's kind of crucial. So it starts at Christmas Eve, it ends in the early hours of Christmas morning, just as Santa's doing his rounds. OK, so there we go. It's settled. It's a Christmas morning. <laughs> Great. If you look really carefully, you can see the reindeer in the final shot of the film. It's and true. that just took 11 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> you said rabbit hole quickly at the beginning. I just, I just thought I'd chuck the hand grenade in there. <laughs> What are we going to talk about for the next 11 minutes? <laughs> Amazing. Uh, we should also mention that at the end, it's, it's snowing. It's snowing the money snowing at the end, yes. which was the addition, it was a suggestion by one of the co-producers in the film, I think, Lloyd Levin, who went on to produce the greatest movie of all time, Event Horizon. <laughs> so he knows what he's talking about. I put that in the top ten. That is a great movie. Well, the top ten of movies titled Event Horizon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, are we... Ju- I, I can't... <laughs> I love so Event dry. Horizon. Well, okay, good. All right. I, I didn't, really love it. But... I didn't come here to hear <laughs> shit said about Event Horizon. Do you see? <laughs> Do you see? <laughs> Don't worry, this is the Event Horizon shit-free zone. Good. It's all good. good it's good. all good. I chewed Sean Pertwee's ear off at a bar once going, tell me everything about Event Horizon. Did you? Or did you just go to go, Liberate tutta me ex infernis? He's like, what the fuck? We thought it was Liberate me, but it's Liberate tutta me. Save yourselves. This shit is fucked. So we've gone completely off topic. Well, so a Christmas movie. I was going to say, we don't know when Event Horizon Horizon set, or do we? I think it actually does say it takes place in November or December, therefore... Therefore, it's there the you go. greatest Christmas movie <laughs> ever made. <laughs> Dr. William Weir's Santa. Can I just pick you up on one thing, Alex? Uh, you said there that the, the lift is the modern-day chimney. Right, yes. Really? <laughs> I mean, you don't get kids huddled around an elevator on Christmas Eve waiting for the thud of presents from, from the roof. The ding Do of you? presents, Sean. The ding of presents. <laughs> Do I, you? And plus, you know, you know he's coming as well. He's coming, he's coming. <laughs> ten, nine. He's going to be here, Mom. He's going to be here. <laughs> Any second now. I, I, uh, I grew up uh, in a tower block in Leeds. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, uh, that was where we waited. Or something. We'll gather we around did, we didn't have chimneys, yeah. but if you want to undo my childhood, Chris. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> All right, so we've established, I think pretty firmly, Dave, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, I know. It's good. I'm just is... going to say that now. I've got nothing on Event Horizon in my phone notes either, so I've got, not, I've got not a lot to contribute to the podcast, but it's great being here. I feel like a competition winner. I hang out with the guys from Sky and Empire magazine. This is excellent. So um, is, is Die Hard, I mean, we, we, it's a great Christmas movie. What does it mean to you? When did you first see it? Dave, you saw it at the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> and it turns out I missed a lot of uh, <laughs> the subtle undercurrents when it comes to the festive period. Yeah. But you, uh, had, you, you had obviously, you'd seen it before, Dave. No, it's, well, I, I, have, I have seen it before. I've seen it many times before. And, I, and it's a wonderful film. I think, um, you know, we all agree that, that it's Alan Rickman on absolutely mm. fine form as, as a villain that mm. kind of set the bar for many villains to come. I still think, even though he kind of kills a lot of people, it's an act of terrorism, the worst thing he ever did 
was giving that Joni Mitchell CD to Emma Thompson in, um, <laughs> in Love Actually. That when, you know, yeah. when she thinks she's going to get the gold necklace and it goes to the uh, the personal assistant lady, that's that's the yeah. worst. And I look at Hans Gruber and I think, just put away the Joni Mitchell CD, Hans. <laughs> but, no, but he's great. It's weird seeing Bruce Willis with hair um, because mm. I hadn't seen yeah. it in a while. When he, he suddenly pops up, you go, oh, Bruce Willis with hair. I don't like Bruce Willis with hair. I like a bald really? Bruce Willis. Yeah, I prefer a bald Bruce Willis. I tell you, I don't... I like, I like bald... pop, post-pulp fiction is how I like my Bruce Willis. <laughs> Terry Gilliam once called uh, Bruce Willis's bald head a monument to cranial architecture. <laughs> and I, I love that quote. I love Bruce Willis. I love bald Bruce Willis. But I tell you, I don't like bald John McClane. So that's where oh, that's where it doesn't feel like John McLean. Doesn't feel like John McLean. But that's because oh, that's, that's because it, as Bruce Willis became more and more bald, so John McLean became more and more bald. So he lost every attribute that we see in Die Hard that <laughs> makes you like John McLean. He went from being this vulnerable character who yep. you could relate to, who gets glass in his feet, who's like at the very start. I mean, just take the opening scene in Die Hard. At the time, we're surrounded by you know the mid eighties. You've got Stallone, you've got Arnie, these indestructible heroes. There was absolutely no way either of them would open a movie with digging their fingernails mm. into the armrest of a seat and showing that level of vulnerability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Arnie, that guy with the make uh, fists with your toes, yeah. like Arnie would have, like, he would have had some nonsensical like comeback. <laughs> that he would I would shoot your toes. But he would be like, I prefer to make fists with my fists, <laughs> fly boy. And, and he wouldn't, he, and then he wouldn't have even been. He'd have got off the aircraft by the landing gear or something for no discernible reason so it's like you get this guy who like i was a i was a massive geek at school and even i like when i first watched die hard i was like yeah but if, if i was in that situation i'd definitely react like um, john mcclain so you just <laughs> suddenly go wow but i will say at the same time hans gruber there are moments in that film where you want to be hans gruber and yeah. that's rare for a, a villain. The entire film, right. I would yeah. But then oh, that's because you're a sociopath, in fairness. Well, we, should, we should mention this. This is also true, but D'Souza talks about this, and he was saying, like, in his head, like, the way he wrote sections of it, because he write all of it, Jeb Stewart wrote the first script, D'Souza polished it and put all the fun stuff in. <laughs> uh, but the way he talks about it, he saw Gruber <laughs> as the protagonist of the film. <laughs> okay. Right, yeah. in, the sen- yeah. in the sense that, basically, John McClane, if John McClane hadn't been there, Hans Gruber's plan would have just been like, right, steal the money, and, and off he goes. He's yeah. the protagonist, yeah. There's something beautiful about watching... Um, what the 80s thought really advanced computer technology would be like <laughs> and just how layman's terms it is. It's just kind the of, uh, could you please hack into the mainframe on the eighth floor? <laughs> yes, I can. I'm doing that right now for you. Thank you very much indeed. And it, it's lovely to watch that, that idea of just how accessible computers would be yeah. with an 80s eye on things. But remember like when, she, when he arrives at the Nakatomi Plaza and he's like looking for her? Holly McLean, where he's just kidding. Mm-hmm. And he goes, what's a touch screen? <laughs> <laughs> and he's touching it as an eight bit yeah. graphics. Yeah. And apparently, like, they were all like really impressed by that. <laughs> but also, that Cute scene toy. makes no sense. Because <laughs> he asks for his wife. The guy says, touch it into the thing. And he goes, 30th floor. And the guy goes, yeah, they're the only ones left in the building. <laughs> At which point, she just said, could we not have fucking started there? And you just pointed me to the lift. <laughs> oh, jobs worth uh, everywhere. Honestly. <laughs> anyway, I love um, the, char- the, the hacker in it, the computer nerd. Theo, Theo yeah. is, um, mm. is a great character. And weirdly, what John McTiernan did was if he saw certain actors having, I guess, more fun with their character than other actors, he'd keep them alive longer. I think it was Steve D'Souza who said yeah. this because Theo yeah. was meant to, like, cark it. Uh, Bruce Willis, John McClane, was meant to kill Theo. But because they added in at the 11th hour the McLean and Hans Gruber meeting when they heard that Alan Rickman could do an American accent, they were like, fantastic, let's, let's have them oh, meet now because he's not seen him, we can, he can do the accent... And so Theo in that scene was meant to die but got saved. And they were like, save Theo because he's having fun. You didn't bring me along 
my charming personality. <laughs> well, Al Leong was another one who would have died earlier, but he improvised that scene where he eats the Hershey bar and he starts jumping on it. And D'Souza was like, oh, he's great. I like him. Like, because he had personality. So D'Souza was like, okay, so I pushed him to the end. Like, we, he's one of the last to die. Yeah, because Al Leong's like a legendary bad guy. He's he the is, guy yeah. who tortures uh, Mel Gibson in he Lethal indeed, Weapon yeah. with the electrodes. Less, less good is uh, James, the terrorist James, who's one of the guys with the rocket launch who tortures the car. That's Vigo the Carpathian from Ghostbusters no! 2. Yes, it is. Yeah. In the painting. Scourge the man Carpathia. in the painting. Sorrow of Moldavia and <laughs> shit terrorist. You are like the buzzing of flies to him. <laughs> That's exactly it. Um, is he also the guy who is in The Money Pit? Oh, that's the uh, that's Carl. That's what, the main. I recognise yeah. one of the other blonde the main villains. Henchman, yeah, that's yeah. yeah. Okay, he's Alexander a ballet Golanoff. dancer. Yeah, he was a yeah. ballet dancer. From, because he's uh, a conductor Russia. in the Money Pit, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, mm, absolutely. And he was he massive with that great big long yeah. hair. What do you guys think of the Money Pit? Sorry, to, love to the Money Pit. Oh, okay, good. That but needs a revisit. Carl, should, we the, should we do a podcast now as well? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> if you watch it, come back with a load of facts that are wrong. Alex can correct me, embarrass me, even though we've been friends for fifteen years, and I can go home. To go back to to go back to. Carl, though, and, and to go back to crediting, like, you know, for, it's the start of Deadpool. The writers are the unsung heroes mm. of this film. I mean, the level of sort of detail that they give each of these characters, I mean, like, you know, everyone in this movie, from the, the newsreader to, like, the guy on the plane, you believe they all have backstories. And Carl and his brother, who I think is called Tony. Tony, yeah. Tony. The world's like, worst dressed terrorist. <laughs> just that yeah. tracksuit. That tracksuit. Yeah. That, that was at GQ this year, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's, uh... Is it weird that I find it really disconcerting every time you find out how small his feet are? Because he's so tall. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> the only guy with feet smaller than my little sister. Right. Yeah. But... Yes, I've got a quote in the film! <laughs> yes! But that whole scene where... Uh, Carl's chopping the phone lines before yeah. uh, before Tony's finished, like doing yeah. whatever he's doing. What a dick! It, it, like you just like you get so much of yeah. their brotherly relationship yeah, yeah, yeah. in that incidental scene. You're like Carl was clearly the one who got all the girls. Tony was at home, you know, getting dressed up yeah. for his reenactment society, and like they, then suddenly you just like the whole thing sort of comes together. And you're mm. like you make up this backstory, and we get to hear the German for what I can only assume is you massive bellend. So that's, uh, <laughs> that's helpful. Although apparently no one actually speaks real German. Well, they do. Now, in the original theatrical cut, it was just gibberish. And it was just nonsense. <laughs> no. They have since redubbed every single one of the terrorists, except for Hans, whose German is still ropey. So, for example, when he says, Schist dem Fenster, yeah. it's Schist auf, auf dem Fenster. Yeah. It's poor German grammar. Yeah, but everyone else's has been corrected. Mm. Yeah. It was all looped. But Hans is amazing, isn't he? I think, I think there's a really strong argument to be made that Hans is the greatest villain of all time. Absolutely. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. I mean, yeah. the, whole, the whole quoting Plutarch, the... the uh, when the, Alexander saw Alexander. the breadth of his domain, he wept for them and all more worlds to conquer. Yes. Oh, Benefits nice. of a classic of education. But again... <laughs> You sort of end up going, well, he's clearly educated. He's clearly come from a wealthy, privileged background. Mm. Even so if he does misquote Plutarch, but that's neither here nor there, but go on. <laughs> Isn't it via the Twilight Zone? It's, it's, uh... it's via a number of things. Yeah. No one's quite sure where that comes from. It's via a last-minute rewrite when no one, had, <laughs> no one had Google back then. <laughs> but... Like that whole thing about why he's stealing six hundred and fifty million dollars in negotiable barrel mm. bonds, you're like at that point you're like, well, well, why? Why does he need them? What happened? Has he fallen on hard times? Is his family <laughs> money gone? And you go, you make up these. It's, that's what the script it's, does. It shows questions that it asks you, the viewer, to then fill in. There's a nice moment where he releases uh, a group of terrorists from somewhere in the world that he, yeah, he yeah. states he's only <laughs> he just heard on, but they sound quite um, good. So yeah. let's let I read about them in time magazine. Yes. 
that's it. We're going to start doing it in stereo. My favourite part of that is when he says it and Carl, like, comes and just goes, just a mouth. <laughs> yeah. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> but th- that whole thing's really interesting because the, like, the Roderick Thorpe novel, they are eco-terrorists. So it's uh, it's not the Nakatomi Corporation, it's an oil company and it's about... Klaxon Oil. Yeah, Klaxon Oil, absolutely. And they've been doing environmental bad deeds uh, and they're trying to uncover evidence of the, the misdeeds that they've been doing, which they are very much guilty of. And McTinnan turned down this role a number of times and he had a few conditions for taking it on. One of them was uh, McLean, who was then called John Ford... <laughs> obviously, was much more of a kind of Fleming-esque hero, much more of a sort of an anti-terrorist expert. He goes, no, no, he needs to be a flat foot from Jersey, we need to keep it low-key. And he says, no one likes terrorists, terrorists are depressing, you know. Everyone loves a crook, everyone loves a criminal. Thieves are funny because they're just about the money. So the whole thing was changed to be... Two great mm, shouts there, yeah, yeah mm. absolutely. Uh, that set up the template for Die Hard movies going forward because they all have, pretty much, they all have a big twist where the bad guy turns out to be someone that you didn't quite think mm. that it was, maybe in, in A Good Day to Die Hard, or they turn out, you know, there's a bad one like John Amos and Die Die Hard 2, yep. or it's just a, a robbery like in Die Hard with a Vengeance. Sorry if I spoiled all uh, three of those movies. <laughs> I'm doing really one good. a year, Chris, you know this. <laughs> I didn't spoil the fourth one. <laughs> no, they, that. they did that for you. <laughs> the thing is that what they all miss, though, is like the cool factor. Like when Hans Gruber walks in in that trench coat flowing behind mm-hmm. him at the start, you're like, well, he's fucking cool. I mean, he's <laughs> yeah. just fundamentally cool. You you juxtapose that yeah. with William Sadler as Colonel Stewart. But in naked. Doing fucking Tai Chi <laughs> in what looks like a hotel room at the Premier Inn, watching the news completely naked, and you're like, I don't like him. He's weird. Why does he come round at Christmas, Mum? <laughs> We've all done it. We have. It's We've true. all been in the Premier Inn in Colchester. But I, I that find one it time really <laughs> funny. That we don't talk about. <laughs> it's it really nice funny. that we get together once a year. <laughs> I'm naked now. And then it was last year. You said, "Why don't we make a podcast out of our next meeting, guys?" <laughs> Everyone watch, oh, I don't know, yeah. um, Die Hard, that'll yeah. do. That'll do, that's it. It could have been very different, though, because I mean, a lot of this film did get thrown together on the fly, and one of those was the look for the terrorists, which originally was supposed to be, you know, in sort of, you know, tack gear and whatnot. And it was the casting director originally who looked at that and was like, we cannot put Alan Rickman in his first movie role, we cannot put yeah. him in, uh, you know, combat fatigues and a flak jacket. And they were like, no, let's dress them like models. And it really, really works, because it's all blouse-on jackets and blow-dries and stuff. When they first spill out of the uh, truck, which does not have an ambulance in it. It's important that we know. <laughs> oh, yeah, when sure. they first spill out of that truck, they genuinely look like models on a catwalk. It's ridiculous. Uh, yeah, although if you were the actor who was playing Tony, you, it, it's like, sorry, Tony, uh, we ran out of all the good stuff. <laughs> you got here late. We got this ill-fitting tracksuit. <laughs> and some really small shoes. <laughs> Alex, you mentioned it there that you kind of, you almost, you root for him in a way. And I always find, I, every time I watch Die Hard, I kind of hope that he gets away with it. Yeah, I do. love John McClane as well. I want John McClane to save the day and, and, and win. But I also want Hans to kind of be sitting on the beach earning 20% by the end of yeah. the movie. Yeah. The bit where he actually gets to break the lock and the music swells and it's really oh, just... Oh, oh, oh to joy. joy. Yeah, yeah, it's majestic mm. and he's actually, he's won. Yeah. The bad yeah. guy has won. And that expression on his face, the, the brilliant yeah. Uh, yeah. slow motion shot that Jan de Bont has uh, at the very end where he falls out of the building, which yeah. like, you know, they had to use military-grade technology <laughs> to actually achieve at that yeah, point. Yeah, they the camera. It mm. was so new. And the expression on his face, like, as initially it's sort of that moment where he's sort of like, 
he realizes he's falling and then there's that bit where he realizes he's gonna die and he hasn't won yeah. and like the sort of internal shock of that like his self-belief like finally falters it's just an incredible moment yeah. there's also that lovely bit i think as you, you mentioned it earlier that where they first meet for the first time mm. hans and um, and john and he's just like again like a catwalk model he's leaning up against the wall and uh john's being you know very smart in looking at the list of employees and there's a William somebody, mm. but he calls himself Unbill. Mm. So he yeah. abbreviates the name written on the wall behind him while he's kind of smoking a cigarette. And <laughs> exactly. I just love Bill, Bill, Bill Clay. Bill Clay. <laughs> he's, uh, he's standing on one leg in that shot because he fucked his knee jumping down in the previous scene. Oh, really? So that's why you see him. You never see him from the knee down. <laughs> Interesting <laughs> bit about, uh, about that scene because... Initially, because there's a bit of confusion about how and when Bruce Willis, John McClane, realises that he's not Bill Clay yeah. and he's actually Hans Gruber. And you mentioned the ambulance not being in the back of the yeah. truck. And so, like, to cover for that, like, because they added the ambulance in later to give Argyle something to do, they had to cut away from an earlier scene when they're getting out of the truck. Like, earlier, McTiernan wanted to cut away so you can't see there's no ambulance. And that was a moment where the terrorists all synchronise yes. watches and you all see you see that they've all got the same watch and it was going to be a running thing where Bruce Willis eventually realises, hang on, they've all got the same watch and when he gives Hans the cigarette in that scene, mm -hmm. he notices uh -huh. the watch yeah. and yeah. realises it. But because they cut the earlier scene, it doesn't make sense, but it just makes sense anyway because John McClane works shit out, right? <laughs> Hot fact, they were matching Tag Heuer watches and the crew got gifted them at the end of the shoot and D'Souza never got one and he's really fucked off about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty flimsy evidence to shoot someone on, isn't it? Yeah. You've got a tag hoyer, die! <laughs> yeah, he might have just gone to the same watch emporium. Uh, that bit always fascinates me because that's the only time we really see Hans, well, desperately improvising, but we mm. also see that his hair is out of place, which is unusual. And then the next time we see him, it's back in again, so he must have brought Chell with him at some point. <laughs> but All I, the good terrorists do. Yeah. <laughs> He's got his own personal stylist by the looks of it. John McClane says to him at that point, whenever he, it's revealed, and he goes, oh, it's pretty tricky with that accent, you should be on fucking TV with that accent, and... I always thought that it wasn't a great accent. I don't think it's a great accent. <laughs> I'm so pleased you said that. It's not good. But because apparently he was doing, like, someone on, the reason that scene came about was, like, someone just, like, casually on set went, oh, can you do an American accent? Those are UK actors can do American accents. And he was like, well, I can do, um, I can do uh, this one from, I think he'd watched the SNL sketch. Yeah. Uh, the Californians at the time. Yeah. Got, I got a Californian accent. And, like, D'Souza saw yeah. it and went, yeah. oh, my God, that's brilliant. And calls Joel Silver over and goes, this is brilliant. McTiernan, get it. This is brilliant. We can make than me and then you sort of watch it you go really and then when you see him it's good oh, oh don't come here don't come here please don't come here you're one of them aren't you you're one of them you're like what the fuck is that where are you, where are you from <laughs> exactly where yeah. are you from first time first time making a movie as well first movie role. Oh, I, I always know that. yeah literally his first movie was Die Hard I mean, he just, just quit stage, hadn't he? <laughs> quit at that point yeah. you're like, you're not, it's not going to get any better wow. from that moment on because it was Sam Neill I think they approached first for the role of uh, Hans I mean you never shot everyone you yeah. hear so many stories yeah. but I, I, you only really hear about Sam Neill being approached for uh, the role of Hans Gruber whereas they literally asked everyone who was an actor to play <laughs> like John McClane yeah. before going, all right, we'll go with Bruce Willis. And then his agent, um, Arnold Rifkin, like yeah. the famous, yeah. like, you know, his agent for like 25 years, uh, sort of went, yeah, all right, I'm, I'm sensing that you don't have anyone at the moment. I'd like $5 million. Yeah. Which was an insane sum at It that made time. him one of the <laughs> highest paid movie stars yeah. In the world at that point, without ever having a big, he was a TV star. Yeah. He'd done two Blake Edwards movies, That's like right. small movies that hadn't done anything, and he gets five million. And apparently, the day after it emerged that he got five million, 
everyone else's salary in Hollywood <laughs> went up because actors are going, uh, I kind of won awards and yeah. I'm not getting five million. So Bruce Willis is responsible for the spiraling <laughs> fees that actors get. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? I think it's a good thing, right? More, I mean, he earned know. that money. To, yeah. to me, I'm like, yeah. It was five million plus six hundred and forty million in negotiable bear <laughs> That's his money at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, he's, just, he's just Bruce's salary. <laughs> yeah, he's just throwing great big sacks <laughs> of cash around. <laughs> I can do with it what I like, and this is what I want to do. Ready cameras one through seven. Yeah, but no one take it. Pick it up again. Pick it up again. <laughs> the whole plan was. The whole plan was. His, his agent saw it so that even if it flopped. Like, he'd still be all right yeah, because yeah. he had five million dollars. So it was like, you know, I'll take it. Well, I'll and coming it. from Moonlighting, as you just said, you know, it, it's going to work out for me either way. But I mean, you say obviously there's so many different actors have been associated with so many famous roles. Um, but as we are talking about Die Hard and as we've just been talking about Alan Rickman, it's so important just to pause for a moment and go, thank goodness that one worked out. Nothing against Sam oh, yeah. Neill or anything else, but that's one of the great yeah. movie roles. Mm-hmm. Was, yeah. And uh, I, I mean, look, it's. It is one of those movies, you know, happy accidents happening in movies. And because you mentioned moonlighting, and Bruce Willis was at the start of the shoot, he was sort of dry- juggling doing moonlighting with shooting Die Hard, and it was like killing it. He was so- literally moonlighting. <laughs> he was moonlighting. Yeah, bloody hell. And uh, John McTiernan was like, to Steve D'Souza, he's like, look, we're kind of killing Bruce here. Can you maybe just uh, write some stuff for the other actors to do, which is how yeah. we get, like, such rich characters. Like, mm. they wrote more for the whole Hans and Holly stuff came about because they they just introduced this idea of Holly being the sort of figurehead for all the hostages and sticking up for them because they didn't have Bruce because he was asleep. That's right. Yeah. yeah, that was the first extra bit that D'Souza wrote was that scene between Bonnie Bedelia and, and Alan Rickman, which is great. Yeah. The way she comes in, she's like, we want bathroom breaks. We want, and mm. he's clearly back-footed by which I really love. Yeah. Put you in Who charge. Put, yeah. mm. you, did. you did. When you, when you killed, killed my, my boss. boss. Oh, good, 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 good point. <laughs> the other thing, uh, with my, my first child is going to be born soon, and uh, when he or she gets a little older, I'm looking forward to, not like many people would, with the little discarded Legos around the, the front room. I'm looking forward to being able to bandage up my feet and walk around in like shards of glass. <laughs> walk in the room going, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, his dad's got his vest on again. <laughs> He's rolling around on the floor. <laughs> Lock up the bearer bonds. Lock up the bearer bonds. <laughs> He's throwing 20 peas from the roof. <laughs> Just got some gaffer tape in your back because you couldn't find the Christmas cellar tape. The pistol, yeah. Such a shame. Well, austerity Britain. That's what you, everyone's got to make cuts. <laughs> Budget diehard. There's something to talk about. Diehard with the Brexit. Anyway, we're getting political. Let's not get political, people. Let's move on. So we talked about Hans Gruber and how amazing he is, but we haven't really talked about John McClane. I like that John McClane is the antidote to, as Alex was saying, to your Schwarzeneggers, to your Stallones, that he is an everyday guy. He's just a policeman. He's not exceptional particularly in any way. Mm. I mean, he doesn't have any fucking shoes. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And the fact that he's very wry and he's quite wisecracking, you know, that was a really interesting thing. And scared. Thing. And clearly scared. And, yeah. and why it works is he's on his own, let's be honest, for most of the film. So they have him talking to himself so that you have some dialogue happening. And one of the reasons why he gets his feet cut up was because they worried that he was coming across, frankly, as a dick. Yeah. Because he's constantly sarcastic. So they wanted to humanise him. They wanted to make him feel really vulnerable. And I think that really works. And he does feel out of his depth throughout the whole film, which is one of the main appeals of that character. I love him. 
They yeah. love him to bits. I think that's where they go wrong with certainly four and five. Yeah, because by then he becomes he's a superman. superhuman, yeah. and, and he's he was used never to meant to be that. Just jumping onto jet fighters yeah. and punching people in traffic in Russia, as if it was just a normal Wednesday for but him. He became exactly the the antithesis of what John McClane was meant to be. Mm. He became those indestructible heroes that John McClane was the antidote to in Die yeah. Hard. Yeah, just the fact that he sits up front in the limousine, you know, like he's an everyday guy. You know, he's not a special guy. He sees himself on a level with Argyle uh, or Basil Exposition, as we like to call him at the beginning of the film. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's... Uh, yeah, he's... Uh, come on, he's... tell me. Tell me your story. Tell me. Come on, tell me. <laughs> okay, so this is my backstory. Here we go. No, trouble with my wife. New York car. <laughs> okay, good. A bit more, a bit more. Got, got a long drive. And then, of course, a conversation that ends with the line, this is Christmas music. <laughs> Going back to our original conversation. See, Dave Barry. Christmas right from the off. Right from the motherfucking yes. off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, how do you... Where do you stand on, on Bruce and, and John? Well, He's got say, hair in this, but can you get past it? Yeah, no, I no. It's it was just weird to see because I hadn't watched it in such a long time. It was weird to see Bruce Willis of hair, but I, I I absolutely love him as well. It's that this shit happening to this guy is exactly what it's all about. Mm. And you do, and Alex said it brilliantly. Arnold Schwarzenegger would have come up with a way of not being a scurdy cat on an aeroplane, mm-hmm. and you're so right about that. And it just sets him up perfectly. Uh, and also that seems fascinating about taking the shoes away because otherwise he was coming across as a bit of a dick. They made so many right calls, didn't they? And they made a lot of those calls on the fly, but they mm. were all absolutely spot on. Mm to give us two great movie characters. Yeah. One call he made right from the off was, I think, everything about this movie is one of the greatest things for me, yeah. but the setting, the location. Nakatomi Plaza, yeah. which of course the is building. the Fox, Fox building Plaza. in LA. Yeah. Have, you, have you ever seen it in real life? Oh, yes. I've been inside it. Oh, yes. have you, have, As have I. I have. You've been inside I've it? I've been inside it. Yeah. Are there floors still under construction? <laughs> Sadly not. <laughs> There's no roof. <laughs> is there a little snowman lamp even in July? <laughs> <laughs> I rest my fucking case. There is. <laughs> I, went, I went to the roof and tried to order a pizza. Yeah. It didn't go well. <laughs> How many people do you think wander into security and go, hi, I'm looking for Holly McCain? She said, get out. Get the fuck out. You're oh, what's guy this touchscreen thing <laughs> I've never seen one of these before. Did you make loads of fire engines drive towards it? And they go, no, no, come on, you asshole. Turn the truck around. Yeah, I don't, I don't get a taxi there. I get a helicopter, a low-flying helicopter. So could you please unshackle yourself from that fire hose? <laughs> Here's, here's a whole fact for you. One of the most expensive yeah. effect shots in that entire film is when Argyle is driving Bruce from the airport to Nakatomi, you see a shot of the Nakatomi Plaza, mm. and they had to remove all of the phone wires, all the telegraph poles, because they just crisscrossed the entire thing and they ruined the view. So all of that had to be removed, and it drove McTiernan insane. That's fascinating. And of course, you would no, you would have no idea because it's a completely invisible shot. But they wanted that shot of the building, and they had to take them all out. And of course, they shot like uh, nearly all the movie in the building. I think the main ballroom, uh, ballroom, the party room where yeah. oh, they're all yeah. gathered. That's a yeah. set, yeah. and that they've the got a, a, a set, huge yeah. sort of matte uh, skyline in the background. But everything else was actually yeah, shot all the there. construction. Under construction floors were under construction floors, and they wrote the bit in because they found these floors under construction. They didn't. Mm. That was a you know we talk about happy accidents in yeah. cinema. That was because they were like, great, let's set a scene here. <laughs> well, Martinez insistent you would never have had the film if they'd not had access to that building. So no one will lend you a skyscraper. It's just mm. not going to happen. Mm. But they just happened to have one. But Fox had rented out a number of the floors, so there were. Uh, there were companies on there. there was a law firm or whatnot which was constantly apparently threatening to sue because the gunfire was driving them insane. Yeah, uh, yeah you're going to sue us? Yeah. Find a lawyer. <laughs> what? <laughs> but it's amazing. So did, were Fox using it at that yeah, time? Well, it was, was they, were moved, they were moving into it. Yeah, it was their building. So it was newly acquired. Uh, so they were renovating parts of it. But yes, they were still, they were occupying it. And the office where... Uh... Ellis Cox, it eventually became the office of former President of the United States, Ronald Reagan. Reagan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, my God, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And they, uh, uh, Alex saying, bringing yeah, the knowledge. It's true. Uh, uh, I think urban myth says that there were still kind of like spent cartridges on the floor there. <laughs> Whether or not that's true, I and do not know. the body of Art Bock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Is this guy on the floor? <laughs> uh, you think someone would have moved them out by now? You would. Oh, you I love would. that building. Every time I'm in LA, oh, I just amazing. I have to take a selfie with it. Yeah. You know, <laughs> it's like a building. Just stand there. <laughs> okay. It is. It's it's Action Cinema's Overlook Hotel. It's, it is. Uh, it's a fantastic building. Um, you mentioned Hart Buckner. We're gonna we, we have to discuss him, right? You oh, know. of course. All right, of course, Ellis, who, who is one of the great. I think one of everything. One of the great things. One of the great cinematic sleaze bags. So, but so that good. wasn't Hart Bockner's mo at the time. Like he was more of a classic leader man type. Yeah. So he was playing very much against type. And McTiernan didn't like the way he played it. He told him to play like Cary Grant. That was his whole thing. And Joel Silver was like, No, 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 no. Up the asshole. Up the asshole. More, more, I beg, more. I beg your pardon. <laughs> 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 let's, let's not isolate the audio, Chris. Figuratively, it was a movie set in the eighties. <laughs> a movie set in the eighties. That's 80s. not how you take cocaine. A different time. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does go for maximum arsehole. I think we can all agree. Um, uh, coked off his tits. But that's that, I, yeah. it, it was like you. I mean, it wasn't done sort of privately when McTiernan said that. He went up to him. He yeah. saw him. The way he was playing, it was this sort of jittery kind of yeah. thing. He goes up to him, and goes, "What are you doing?" I hate it. I actually hate it. Stop, <laughs> stop doing that. Because he wanted like like a Cary Grant yeah. kind of like smooth talking guy yeah. to sort of balance out McLean. I mean, and the fact that I, you know, Hart Bockner goes, I'm going to carry on doing it like this. And then the following day, <laughs> John McTinney goes up to him and goes, ah, I, I said to you yesterday, stop doing this. And then McTinney sees Joel Silver laughing at the like the rushes and mm. goes. Give me a second. <laughs> goes over, comes back and goes, yeah, do it how you want to do it. We should, however, talk about the one unresolved controversy of this film, which is, of course, the etymology of yippee motherfucker, which eludes everyone, including the makers of this film. Go on. Uh, so, uh, Jeff Stewart goes with Steve D'Souza. Like, Steve D'Souza insists that it came out of a conversation. So Bruce Willis has said he ad-libbed it, which is nonsense because I own the shooting script and it's fucking in it. <laughs> um, and, <laughs> so he clearly didn't do that. But uh, D'Souza says that he and Bruce used to talk about Roy Rogers and how they loved the Roy Rogers show, and he used to sign off with, not yippee ki motherfucker, mm-hmm. but he used to sign off with yippee ki That's apocryphal. It's just not true. Uh, and if you look into it, Roy Rogers never said that. What he used to say was happy trails, which is, I think, where that line comes from, the happy trails hands. But if you look up yippee ki it does come from, and I now have to look this up because I've completely forgotten the name of it. If anyone remembers it... No, 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 I'm happy to just come. Okay. Mark some time. Oh, every lift gag in every movie. <laughs> what was that? <laughs> That's deep rising. Have you, uh, have you found it yet, James? Uh, hang on, hang on. Chimney time. gag, which is why you look at it. <laughs> oh, you're killing me here. I will say this about Yippie Kaye. I mean, while Yippie Kaye mm-hmm, is. Are we, we can't say that. Of course can we can. We, really? Of course we can. All right, Yippie Kaye, motherfucker. I can't is... believe you said that. <laughs> beat me. Uh, <laughs> bite me, but beat me. Um, is uh, the best, the best, the best Yippie Kaye was when it was screened on ITV in the 90s and they dubbed the uh, Yippie Kaye motherfucker into, and the person they got to dub it sounds like John Hurt, not Bruce Willis. And it goes, Bruce Willis goes, Yippie Kaye, Kimu Sabi. Yes. Oh, I used to love those TV dubs. Yeah. Yippie Kaye, oh. Kimu Sabi. They used to go very Harry Enfield, like Muddy Funsters and things right. like, it was quite strong. But no, actually, I've looked it up. It 
It is uh, the it, the only place it has been found is uh, Bing Crosby did a song called "I'm an Old Cowhand" in the 1930s, which he sings "Yippee Yay Yo Kaye." Uh, so that's wow. as close as you'll get to it. That was so, worth the wait. To go back a step, James, you own the shooting script of Die Hard. <laughs> I've got the blueprints of the uh, Nakatomi Plaza as well. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm planning the next crime. I'm not saying I'm guilty of anything, but yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Because those were yeah. the actual blueprints. In the movie, the one that Hans is pouring over, is they're, they're the real blueprints that they actually got to the building to work out where to shoot. They're not a prop. Yeah, no, they, they refer to the floors because they wanted to keep track of where everyone was going, where the hostages were, where he was at any given time. And um, the reason that you have the um, the uh, Playboy model there uh, was to give you a sense of geography. It wasn't just oh, because he kind of like touches the yeah, for luck. To type show, thing, you're supposed it? to yeah. think, oh right, he's back there, like mm. he's back at the top of the lift shaft. So it was to give you a sense of geography. That's well, what they put it in. It does really well because so mm. many action movies don't do that. You're like, who are they? Where are they? What's going yeah. on? But yeah. that, we do get the geography of that building. So we're all going to gather at Fox Plaza, December twenty fourth. <laughs> pull one last job. Put all this stuff behind us forever. Oh, I thought we were going to the Holiday Inn in Colchester again. <laughs> as long as, as long as, as long as when you arrive, I can lean out of a window and go, "Welcome to the party, pal." <laughs> it's done. That it's is, a done deal. That's a great. That's a great line. We should do. We should do our favorite favorite lines. I honestly, for some reason, the line that makes me giggle the most is, "Welcome to the party, pal." After he's yeah. dropped the body, <laughs> sounds oh, like no. you say it a lot. <laughs> Weirdly enough. My favourite line from Total Recall is See you at the party, Richter. See you at the party, Richter. Oh, that's great. And for some reason, I just really like people falling from great heights <laughs> and references to parties. Oh, oh my friend. God. That's the one I wrote it's down, niche. actually. That's the one, Welcome to the Party Power is the one I wrote down. <laughs> that's good. good. Yeah, that's true. But the thing is, like, the most quoted line for me from Die Hard is the most random, which is just, ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, and gentlemen due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy agreed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the true meaning of power. I usually stop you after, ladies and gentlemen, yes. ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> the rest of it's not quite as memorable. Car- yeah, true, true, very true. Now, the no- we have the- talked about this on the podcast many, many what? times, but I am going to bring this. Alan Rittman came to the Empire Awards once, and there was a point where he was at the buffet helping himself to a Caesar salad, and Chris and I were standing just out of earshot, just going, ladies and gentlemen, ladies <laughs> and gentlemen, where are the croutons? Uh, and we, we like to think that secretly yeah. he could hear us. Because we didn't have the nerve to go up to him. <laughs> Because we thought he would be able to see two diehard fanboys yeah. coming a mile away and going, I've done Shakespeare, no. <laughs> oh, that's nice, though, to, to yeah. see him up close at the buffet. Is, oh, is it good enough? Still? It was amazing. I God of a man. Um, I interviewed, obviously, the uh, the hero of the piece, uh, Bruce Willis, at the um, the Good Day to Die Hard premiere on the, the red carpet. And, um, and I mean, we, we've talked about how, he, you know, he can be difficult. I maintain that he's just got... a. a fascinating sense of humour. So I walked up to him and I, I was holding the microphone in front of him and like it was going out on the PA in Leicester Square for everyone to hear. And he's going... <laughs> and talking so quietly, the microphone can't pick him up. So I have people in my ear going, move the microphone closer, move the microphone closer. So I move the microphone people. closer and he's going... Burr, burr, and it gets louder and he can hear himself and he puts his hand on my forearm and just moves the microphone... <laughs> Back down and carries on going. And I've got people screaming in my ear going, move it back, move it closer. And I, I went to see them afterwards and I'm like, I didn't move it closer because if John McClane moves a microphone away from his mouth, you don't move it back. <laughs> 
Do you think um, he had people in his ear going, move the microphone away? <laughs> what would have been great as well is if just right at the end he'd gone, so anyway, that was a surprise to us all. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the part that Guy Hart sings. <laughs> anyway, I'll never see her again. Bruce! <laughs> and I said, even if it is a cat, I'm not going to eat it. <laughs> I love the uh, I'm an exceptional thief Mrs. McLean and since I'm moving up to kidnapping you should be more polite I absolutely love that it's amazing Everything and it can be adapted says. for anything in, in life yeah. I'm an exceptional bus driver and since I'm moving up to taxis you should be more polite uh, what's your, what's your favourite moment what's your favourite die hard send in the car send in the car <laughs> that is such a good I line love, that guy. love the fact he says it twice send in the car send in the car <laughs> And then I only worked out, here's an admission, I only worked out probably a couple of years ago, I'd never heard the term RV. So when Theo goes, oh, the police have got themselves an RV. I was like, that probably means military vehicle of some kind, like a a sort of response vehicle. I didn't know it was a joke. Yeah. Jimbo, your favourite moment? So many. One of the little grace notes I like is that when they send in the car Mm -hmm. and when they send in the SWAT team, one of the SWAT members pricks his finger on a rose and just goes, ah! And it really... tells you exactly what you need to know about what's about to happen because they are completely outmatched. That was apparently an ad lib by the actor which Matin and liked and asked him to then do it in subsequent takes. Yeah. But I thought that's a really nice moment. And I think there are those little moments of comedy all the way through, whether yeah. it be Al Lung um, eating the Hershey bar. Mm. And then I think he has a, another one. He's like a Babe Ruth. Crunch, he gets he's got quite crunch. a lot of them. Yeah, yeah the Nestle crunch. crunch. The Nestle and I think there's crunch. a Babe Ruth as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, he cleans up in that concession stand. Oh, we, really really we haven't even talked about Paul Gleason as Dwayne T. Deputy <laughs> Chief of Police, Dwayne T. Robinson. Weirdly enough, Al Long is possibly the only successful thief in the movie. <laughs> yeah. He, he gets, gets away, away with some candy. He, I mean, he's dead by the end, but he yeah. actually stole and ate the candy. That's true. <laughs> Technically, of course, Theo and one other uh, thief. I'm not yeah. going to call him Terrorist. Live. Yeah, Christoph. So is. there's your sequel right there. Forget this, you know, Die Hard 6 origin tale of, of McLean, because this is the origin tale of John McLean. It is. This right here. Not some guy filling out paperwork, which is what the other movie would be. <laughs> so they should make the Die Hard 6. Theo gets out of prison. He's pissed. He wants revenge. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Hollywood. Please send a check <laughs> to the Empire Podcast. I am worried about the what's he now entitled McLean. McLean. I, I just like McLean. Die Hard works, like because it's you know it's a guy in a single location, mm. like fighting against an unstoppable amount of people. This whole idea of sort of flitting between young John McLean and then Bruce Willis in the current day—it's like. Well, no, every scene where Bruce Willis isn't on the screen, you're going to be like, yeah, when are we getting back to Bruce Willis? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dave, what's your favourite Die Hard moment? Uh, oh, we've already touched on them. I love the bit, and the guy's quite read it word for word, which is very nice, but I love the bit where he, he asked for the release of the, the, the other uh, group of terrorists because he's just read about them in Time magazine. Yeah. I think that encapsulates the, yeah. the fun that Adam Rickman was having with Hans Gruber. And I like the meeting of the two characters for the first time. Yeah. Uh, terrible American accent or, or not. <laughs> it's, it was quite nice to see them in the same kind of what, air vent for the first time so uh yeah, two two good moments. Absolutely. I, okay. like, I like the California. I like the fact. I, literally, it's the bit where he like watches the girl in the tight Fucking white thing. California. California. Because every time you land in LA, you just sort of go, "What the fuck is this place?" <laughs> and it just like you suddenly go, "He's me." And the whole point of him being an everyman. I'm like, "Good, I get it." Right? Everyone's beautiful yeah. here, and you go, "Fucking California." <laughs> <laughs> right. We got to wrap this bad boy up. So uh, I know people who haven't seen Die Hard. Amazingly enough. Wow. Uh, so. What would you say to them this festive season to get them to see it, Dave? 
Um, it is definitely uh, a wonderful Christmas movie. Two people that know a lot more about it than I do. <laughs> You've really made turned that perfectly this. clear. Um, so, no, I think, uh, well, uh, just watch it for Alan Rickman being absolutely fantastic and redefining from the 1980s what a villain can be um, in the movie world. That would be my mm. piece of advice. All right. Good, good, good. James? Oh my God! All of those reasons and more. Just, I just, I just think it's your moral imperative to watch it. In fact, I'm, I'm, I'm commanding you to watch it. And I will say, I'm going to count to three. There will not be a four. All right, good, good, good. It's, uh, it's the perfect Christmas Eve movie, isn't it, Alex? I mean, that's. I'll take it under advisement. <laughs> take this under advisement, jerkweed. I didn't know that Bane was in it. <laughs> oh, yes, Speak of the devil and he shall appear. I was born in the dark, but clearly not in Germany, where I'm supposed to be from. Hoggy, goggy, goggy. Hokey, cokey, cokey. Oh, shabbat, off, yeah. Uh, no, why, why? Because uh, you asked for a miracle. Not I give you... Die hard this Christmas. Well, that's all the time we have, I'm afraid. If this has got you all stoked up to see Die Hard, perhaps for the first time, then you are in luck. It is available exclusively on Sky Cinema this Christmas from December 1st as part of Sky Cinema's biggest ever on-demand Christmas movie collection, including... The Muppet Christmas Carol, oh, that's a classic. Frozen, Bad Santa, yes. It's a Wonderful Life, to name but four, which we now know is a pre-make of Die Hard, thanks <laughs> to Alex. Uh, but that's not all. Sky Cinema will have their biggest ever premiere lineup this Christmas, including Avengers Infinity War, yes. The Shape of Water, The Greatest Showman, classic films already. So there's something for everyone to watch whenever you want this Christmas. Visit sky.com forward slash Sky Cinema for details on how to subscribe. And while I'm directing you towards websites, if you feel feverishly that Die Hard is a Christmas film, or equally strongly that it isn't, then go to isdiehardachristmasfilm.com. <laughs> don't do it, they'll tell you apart, man. <laughs> I tried it, guys, don't do it. Get out while you can. <laughs> to join the debate. Dave will be on there. <laughs> on my own in a chat room. I'm yeah. setting up um, setting up another website <laughs> called Die Hard is a Christmas movie. <laughs> I think we're outnumbered, Dave. Yeah. Alex is on there as Hans Gruber Rocks. Dave is on there as, as I've just seen Die Hard. Might have got the wrong end of the stick. It is a classic, classic film. It is. Uh, all that remains for me after saying Christmas a whole bunch of times is to say farewell, Merry Christmas, and yippee Kaye, motherfuckers, to Alex Sane. Woo! <laughs> That was the most un-Hollywood-like. <laughs> Woo! Yeah, that's all right. I'll do it again. No, no, it's fine. It was good. Okay. We're a one-take deals around here. <laughs> you can't do that again. <laughs> See you at the party, pal! <laughs> Wait, no, Richter. What? Woo! <laughs> Dave Berry. yippee ki and a Happy New Year, everyone. Oh, see? See that? He didn't, just, he didn't just lean back and go... Woo! <laughs> I got excited. got excited. Also, um, we should all put our coats on because it's raining dogs and cats outside. Oh. You don't know what I'm talking about, do you? <laughs> what? It's how he finds out that they're terrorists in the Die Hard sequels when he says instead of it's raining cats and dogs, he said it's oh, raining dogs and cats. Yeah. Thank you, Alex. You can't yeah. drop the knowledge bomb this no. late in the day, honestly. Why didn't do this an hour ago? <laughs> 
<laughs> I thought you were going to be really impressed with that. I'm going. That's good. That was good. Oh, no, okay. you, you, you worry. You can tell by the blank looks in her face. Like, <laughs> really it was very polite of you. What's going? Oh, that was you're nice people. You can tell you're nice people. How I'm can the good. same shit happen to the same guy twice? Am I right? <laughs> Uh, and scoop by Merry Christmas and Yippee Kay, a motherfucker from James Dyer. Happy trails, Chris. And also from me. Thank you so much for joining us. Perhaps we'll do this again next year, either in an airport or the Premier Inn in Colchester. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Bye. <laughs> 